0: let's shift gears into gospel today we are uh, finishing our finding joy in life circumstances series in the book of Philippians and we're going to jump all the way back to the beginning today by looking at chapter 1 verses 1 through 6 if you remember for these past months as we've kind of tail-ended this series we've been looking at that primary set of teachings in philippians 4 that was just read to you where paul tells us it's sort of the summation of the whole book he tells us in order to essentially live into the promises that god makes us all through the book of philippians the biggest being that we can be a people filled with the joy of jesus no matter what the circumstances of life present us what he says is, is he gives us this closing summary that tells us to dwell on a very important set of things. To dwell on what is good, what is noble, what is right. Essentially, I open this by saying Paul is very clear that he wants us to figure out where the residency of our minds and our hearts are in life. Because if we do not do that, if we don't have healthy dwelling rhythms, if we do not know what to focus our physical, spiritual, and emotional energies on, what happens is we are very likely going to miss out on the promised joy that Jesus gives us. You have to focus on God. It's a very simple way of saying it, but we've spent uh, a really good amount of time unpacking what that looks like. So the more I thought about how to end this series, the more I thought we needed to finish it exactly where I say we began it, but it's really where Paul began it by shamelessly revisiting the foundational truth Paul gives us to build his case for God's joy on in Philippians chapter one, verses one through six. You can almost consider this the last piece of bread we'll put on a closing sandwich of really incredible teachings and truths that God has given us in Philippians. And the premise of this whole study, just wanna reiterate it, has been that God's joy is available to us in any circumstance in life because true joy, we have to know this, we have to dwell on this. True joy isn't derived or dependent on our circumstances. It's dependent on recognizing the presence of God working in our lives and in our circumstances. Joy comes from knowing God deeply, and that defines how you see circumstances, good or bad. When you get that cart before the horse and circumstances begin to fuel joy, while they can for a season, they can never give you the type of joy your life needs, the type of joy your heart longs for. And so deeply believing and pressing into that promised reality, finding joy and remaining in it, It's how we find and remain in Jesus' joy. Simply put, you have to be a person who dwells on this. To find it and remain in it, you have to dwell on these truths. And it's in these verses where Paul tells us how we can meditate on that promise in such a way that we actually experience it. He says, if you want joy, you must dwell on the fact that you belong to God. That's the foundational joy that drives everything we do as people of God. Even when you feel like your life isn't going anywhere, And that's common for people. Even the most gregarious and outgoing people, the most cheerful of people, have seasons in life where things are not moving the way they would like them to, where circumstances are not, they're not the way you would have written your story. Yet God promises us that even when it doesn't feel like anything is happening, God is with us. His promise is that we can have joy in anything because he's with us. And it is that promise, because of that promise, that says the reason you can be joyful no matter what is going on in your life This is why we're going to wrap up here. I want to remind us of this. The reason you can be joyful no matter what is going on in your life is because God has promised to finish the good work he started in you. And so essentially what Paul does here is he says, look, at the foundation of the book, he's the author, perfecter, and finisher of your faith. At the end of the book, we're sort of reminded that in order to really tap into this, we have to believe this deeply, that God starts works in our life, And he finishes that work in our life. That is why we can have hope and joy, no matter what's going on. When we are without those attributes, hope and joy, when we are without those traits in life, we can believe that they are still present in our life and we can remain, we can find them again because God is promising to finish what he starts. He's promised to do the heavy lifting in our lives when we cannot. And there is a great hope in that statement. And it really leads us to this first closing truth that I want to leave with you as we end this series. It's simply this, if you want joy in your heart, you must rest in the truth. Rest, we talked about this a couple of weeks in a row. You must rest in the truth that God has started a good work in your life. In other words, in order to really believe this, you have to sort of, you have to do less at least for a season and rest more. Okay? what that resting does though, is it gives you proper perspective in what to do, which we'll get to here on the back end of this. Philippians 1, 1 1-3. Paul and Timothy, Paul tells us, Paul and Timothy writes, servants of Christ Jesus to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, at the beginning of the series, I spent some time talking about the theology of what it means to be a person who is deemed holy in God's eyes. And in this case, you can see the, the deep community value of God's church, because Paul isn't writing to a holy person, he's actually writing to a holy people. And this holy people is God's formed community of faith in the city of Philippi. He is writing to a church in Philippians. And the fact that he calls these folks holy people is the clearest evidence we have that God is a God who starts good works in people's lives. Theirs, mine, and yours. And I say this, the reason we know this, that God has started a good work in our lives, is because Paul gives this very descriptive and powerful term, He says, anybody who loves Jesus, anybody who follows Jesus, the true church, he says, you're God's holy people. And I want to spend some time talking about that this morning because it is integral to you actually getting to the place where you can believe God starts a work in your life. The term God's holy people is common in the Bible. We read that word a lot, especially the word holy. And what is most ironic about this term is that while the idea of what it means to be holy in Scripture is pretty clear, It is really not clear in our culture, and it's sad to say at times, even amongst God's people, there is a deep misunderstanding of what it means to be called a holy person. Today, the word is incredibly loaded, much like many of these hot potato words that we find in the scripture. They are deeply significant to us understanding our faith and living it out healthily, but they are often convoluted or confused. And so it, it becomes what I like to call a loaded term in the Bible. It's a, it's a hand grenade idea that if we're not careful about can really misrepresent Jesus in the world and it will cause us to miss Jesus entirely in our faith. So we need to define it before moving on. In Scripture, this idea, remember, God says, or Paul says, if you want joy, he opens this book by identifying us as the people of God, a holy people of God. And he refers to all the people of the true church who have been set apart by God to wholly devote their lives to Jesus as holy people. That is what it means. There is a, an absolute setting apart that God places on our lives. And this setting apart idea is where the confusion usually comes from. This will sort of fit nicely with the two sermons that I taught you over these past three weeks. These last two and then this third one. We spent a lot of time talking about justification and sanctification and the idea that God is working in our lives. This is why it matters. In our modern religious and cultural climate, a great many people don't understand what this means. And for the vast majority of people, holiness, if you're from the outside looking in, it starts to refer to a very select few people a pious and elitist mentality. From the outside, from the the cultural perspective, it's most commonly expressed in our culture's derogatory idea of a holy roller. That's essentially what they see holiness as. It's sort of like not a mark of honor. It's viewed as a person who is indignant and somewhat self-righteous. A person who arrogantly sets themselves apart from other people because they believe they are better than other people. That's why we spent most of last week talking about the fact that this is not true. What's most interesting about this perspective, especially when it comes to having joy, is that even though our our culture and the religious often misunderstand holiness like this, right? Because internally, and I'll share a verse with you here in a few moments, there are Christian people, men and women of God, who often understand holiness as them sort of being better than other people. That's a problem. The Bible never refers to holy people as being a select group of pious people in the church who have done something to bring this about on themselves. In other words, there is no ability to set yourself apart in that manner. Rather, it defines them as being every person in the church community who is genuinely in Jesus. The credit and the glory of holiness in our lives ultimately goes to the foundational reality that Jesus applies holiness to our lives. And so the sole source of this confusion stems from a serious misunderstanding. It really is a theological misunderstanding of who is the person that does the setting apart in our lives. And if you understand God's initial work in your life, his sustaining work, which we'll talk about here in a few moments, then joy becomes something different. It doesn't become something that you have to climb a hill to earn. It doesn't even become something that really, even in our darkest moments, if we're in Jesus, joy is accessible. We might not be able to see it or feel it, but we have to believe with our minds and really process in our hearts that joy is accessible. We are sort of the ones who have made it inaccessible because it is promised to us so promised that God has started a work of joy in our life and plans to complete it. He sort of gives us a a plan B, even if our plan A doesn't work. If we think, listen, we can't even do this, we can't even feel this, God has promised that he's going to bring this about in our lives. Like we said last week, it is a matter of where you believe you find your righteousness in life from. That is the driving force and where you find the promises of God. It comes down to the central nature of who Jesus is in your life, in all areas of the faith. And let me explain. Today, it's very common for people to make a very wrong connection. And it's often amongst God's people in very sophisticated ways. It's not like the holy rolling theme. It's not the type of person who might even be blunt or arrogant. But what happens is, over time, what I have found is maturation in the faith can breed this attitude, if we're not careful. Now, maturation in the faith is what we're going for, right? We are wanting to be sanctified. We talked about that last week. But over time, the more we know about God and the more we press into God, at times what can happen is we start to take the onus of why we are who we are and remove God from the process. It moves to this this challenge we're speaking about this morning. We start to make the wrong connection that our holiness before God is based on what we know about God or what we do for God or what our performance is for God or how we compare ourselves to other people. We sort of have a comparative analysis. Well, I'm better than you in this area, whatever that area is. And what that ends up becoming is an idea that a holy one is a person who earns special favor with God because they are more valuable to God. It becomes a spiritual superiority complex. That's where that ends up. And Paul describes it this way. Here's how he addresses this in Romans 12:3, When he speaks about this very issue, he says, for by the grace, keyword, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Now, he's basically saying, you have been gi- I've been given grace. And because God has given me grace, he's speaking to a, a people of God. And he says, listen, we cannot, even though we have this great gift from God, we cannot think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Key word, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. There is no grounds for this attitude ever. And so please hear me, When we say holiness, I'm not at all trying to undermine the importance of our desire to live in a way where we truly honor God in all of the ways that he calls us to. And there are are a lot of them in the Bible. God sets us apart to, to press into certain life rhythms. They are spiritual, they are physical, they are moral. In this case, joy is an emotional rhythm, right? There are ways God desires us to live. There are expressions without question of holiness that come from the very seat of our hearts because God has made us holy in Jesus. And so a Christian who sees their life like the latter, who starts to have this, this sort of self-righteous attitude, what happens is they're going to be destined to do anything but please God. And that's where the line gets blurry. Like if you look at, for example, we, we touched lightly on them last week when we spoke about change from the inside out, right? Jesus is addressing the Pharisees. And if you were to ask the Pharisees who sort of embody this attitude, they deeply believe they were honoring God in everything they did. But what we see Jesus constantly doing is reminding them that they're not honoring God in everything they're doing. They're, they're sort of now pursuing a faith that is crafted in their own image. And in the process, they think they're following God. That's why I think this is a sophisticated attitude. In those of us who grow in Jesus, it's never usually like a, a completely black and white issue. It takes on these very nuanced ideas. For example, when you look at the Pharisee culture, they are doing the things of God Without God, that's a blurry line, right? That's not like a two plus two equals four. They've got like some of the right actions with an incredibly wrong heart mode is. It goes to show us why the foundation of who sets us apart is essential to our faith. And when it comes to joy, if we miss this, we are likely gonna live our lives without it. And there's a good reason. Maybe you're asking why. Here's why. It is inevitable that when we we don't believe this, when we don't practice this, we become a person defined by a self-righteous setting apart. We no longer need Jesus in our faith, who is the source of our joy. And that often creates an attitude of graceless superiority. It's what it becomes. And that is usually extended to other people, but it can also be extended to self. So if there is no grace in your life for others, if there is no desire to walk with others as they struggle, if there is no desire to see those who are far from God and to have tears, to be burdened like Jesus is, what that says is there might be a hardening of our heart in some areas. There might be a place where we have learned to be comfortable with God's grace, but not necessarily showing it to others. It creates a different form of religion, one that is not a healthy one. All because the person believes that they can, whatever it is they're pursuing, they can fabricate this on their own joy, morality, physicality, spirituality. They derive, a, uh, I like to say, it's almost like a, a warped form of joy from a perceived circumstantial success in following God, which is the story of the Pharisee. Circumstantially, they checked all the boxes. Success. But where it mattered most, they completely missed the box. Where their hearts were before their God. Now, on the contrary, what happens here is, when we do this, we will inevitably inevitably be ruined and robbed of Jesus' joy. And here's why. This is why this is a self-defeating attitude. Because it is inevitable, those who are humble and those who honestly understand grace... Actually, no, it is impossible to, to not only to attain, but to maintain that standard of life. It is inevitable we will make mistakes. It is inevitable we will displease God. It is inevitable we will displease others. It is inevitable others will displease us. And the way we respond in those circumstances, in those situations, really determines how deeply we understand this idea we're talking about today. If we are impatient with those struggling, if we are impatient with those who are far from God, Oh, we do struggle before others, and they are impatient with us. What that says to us is we could be dealing with a potential holiness issue and understanding where the source of holiness is. Because the beauty of the Christian faith is that God looks at a very unholy people, and He makes them holy because of what His Son has done for us. That is the point of our faith. This is guaranteed to happen at some point. We will fail. And when we turn the barrel of scrutiny upon our own lives, it can be brutal. It really can be. I'm not saying don't self-analyze. I'm not saying don't be aware. I'm not saying don't have objective truth inputs in your life. All the stuff we've talked about. But what I am saying is the foundation upon which you understand all that has to be first and foremost in knowing God is the author, perfecter, and finisher of your faith. We are not the ones who originated this. And according to God, we need his strength to finish it. We start to try to sustain a work in our own lives, which can be an issue. And it's a real problem because this just isn't true. And here's the real challenge with this, is that this is that kind of thing like where if we actually wished for this and got it, we'd be in in trouble. God in his infinite wisdom knew this was not what we needed. Because scripture is pretty clear. Nobody has the ability to merit God's love. That's like a really foundational, you know, Gospel of John 1.1 Bible teaching, right? Can't earn God's love. But it's amazing how challenging it is at times to actually practically live that out. You cannot, first and foremost, earn the favor of God or his love because it isn't for sale. It isn't bartered. It is given to us. It is a gift of grace from Jesus we have to receive. It is super clear, no matter what our personal opinions of self are, good or bad, that's been the premise of this series. When we make our lists, right, like what we talked about three weeks ago, oftentimes we are either too soft or too hard on ourselves. We don't have enough analysis about where we are with God or we're so rigid with ourselves that we can't find any joy in pursuing God. No matter what our opinions are of ourselves, and at times even others of ourselves, we are foundationally and ultimately pleasing to God, not because of opinions, rather because of what Jesus has done for us. And there is a beautiful reality in that. And so while the definition of holiness literally means to be set apart from God fully and holy, fully and holy. I've taught on the theology of holiness in here before. It's like picking something up and saying, you are now holy. It's like completely moving it from one realm to another. That's what God calls us—holy people like that. The definition of holiness. We have to be careful as we talk about being moved from one posture in life to another. It's crucial that we know our holiness is never based on God and His grace. Excuse me. It's never. It's never based on us setting us apart. It's always based on God setting us apart in Jesus. Those are two different attitudes. One puts you into a posture of humility, where you depend on God for your future faith. The other moves you into a posture of arrogance where you depend solely on yourself with no need for God. And as I've said a million times, you can't, you can't pursue God without God. You can't have a relationship with the king without the king. You need the king. And the king offers himself to us. This is what makes us holy. Ultimately, God's grace in our lives, not our works. Keep in mind our works come later. That's sort of the end of the equation. Eventually, holiness being set apart holy and fully for God means stuff starts changing. It means you can be blue one day and have joy the next because God is finishing what he started in your life. Now, I'm fully aware that this is a claim that requires proof. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Romans 5.8. We'll kind of meander around Paul's writings this morning. If ever there's a need to sort of drive a stake into the heart of self-righteousness, Romans 5.8 to me is the best verse in the whole New Testament that explains it. Paul tells us, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. He says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't say, okay, they got holy enough. Here's my merit. (laughs) Here's my favor. That's not what happened. God saw the problem. God knew the problem. And he said, they can't earn this. They can't set themselves apart. So while you are yet still sinners, I'm going to put my son on the cross for you, for all of us. And there we learned God's love was given to us by Jesus at a point in our lives when it was spiritually impossible for us to earn it. You know, This is two weeks ago we celebrated the 500th year of the Protestant Reformation and it was verses like this that birthed this. It was essentially men and women being tired of having a faith without God. And what happened is, is we did our best in very broken and faulty ways over the last 500 years to restore God to our faith. And verses like this are what teaches us ultimately what a restoration is. It's explicitly clear. God began the good work of faith in our lives at a time when we were very far from him and unable to do that work in our own lives. And it's why we value mission here, or at least it's why we attempt to, because we can't embrace that attitude. We can't have God love us while we are yet sinners. You know, and that, that beauty of the cross moves our hearts to want to follow him and to affirm who he is in our lives. We can't receive that from God and not desire to show it to others who are just as far from God. His love extends in those reaches of the world too. Now, the main reason you and I have been set apart by God, here's where we'll sort of wrap up this or begin to wrap up this section, is so that we can ultimately find our joy in wholly following God's ways. Understanding Jesus's role in your life is the way you find joy and remain in it in your life. And one of the evidences that you're truly living as a holy child of God, the way we described it, according to the scripture, not by culture or, you know, maybe a religious fallacy. It's when you truly desire to be raised by your Father in heaven. We are children of God, holy children of God. And so if you think about it, a healthy parenting relationship simply says, um, we want our children. I am a child and I have children. Um, All of you are at least halfway in that equation. Nobody is here without being a child. Whether you have children or not is another story. But the idea of, of parenting here says that good parenting means we, we know our, our parents are kind of not perfect. That's what happens as you grow up. And as you parent, you know that you're not perfect as a parent, but you desire a child who loves their parent wants to be raised in their image. That's what we've been talking about. There's a desire to be raised by them, a desire to be in meaningful relationship with them. And this same parallel applies to God's grace in our lives and growing in his holiness, growing in who he says we should be. Holy and joyful. What happens there is those who love God, those who truly understand grace, should want to be raised by their Father in heaven through the truths of gospel, community, and mission. We want to know who God is. We want to live that out with other people. We want to be invested in by other people. Remember, the self-righteous says, I don't need an investment. I pour out. But the humble says, but I still have room to grow. And there's always, always somebody who is down the road from me, who can make an investment in my life. They seek to pour themselves out while being poured into by others. That is what community does for us. It keeps us perpetually humble. And mission just should burden us. These truths, should we should desire to see them in other people's lives. It's pretty interesting when you think about this. We can't just have the idea of God without a life that is actually shaped by God over time. Now, that's not an immediate thing. We should be like a piece of clay, constantly being molded in the image of God. And think of it this way. When we talk about growing in God or being fashioned in his joy, being fashioned in his image, sort of all of that God is being hardwired into our life. Think of it this way. The Bible regularly compares Paul is the master of this actually, the Christian faith and particularly the race of faith, holy living, becoming more like Jesus, he compares this regularly to the lifestyle of an athlete. And if you've played competitive sports, you you know why this is a good metaphor. It's largely because of the intense nature athletics requires. There is an absolute need to to focus physically and to have a mental strength in what you do. You sort of, an athlete, if you think about it, there is a brand of holiness in that. An athlete sets themselves apart from a great many things in order to exceed, to win in his or her sport. It's the same principle, it's just a very different application. And athletics work well because it's really the only analogy we have left today in our modern culture that really encapsulates the idea of what first century discipleship looked like. Rabbinic-type discipleship, the Jesus-type stuff we read about. To succeed in a sport, if you have been a coach or have been coached, no matter which one it is, an athlete is constantly being told to reorient their whole life around a certain form or technique or practice. You know, a coach doesn't meet with an athlete once a year to correct a batting form. They are swinging bats every single day, and coaches are making minute adjustments. Your elbow's a little too low, or you look uncomfortable. It's like, it's like boots on the ground, immediate adjustment. You don't develop a 10-month poor swing and then get it corrected. At that point, you've probably hardwired yourself to have some negative athletic forms. And so what happens here is this idea of the way God works in our lives is he wants to coach us like that. He wants to engage in us, with us regularly. He wants our truth touching us, his truth touching us every day. His people touching us every day. His mission touching us every day. What he wants is for us to be the type of people who, and it's sort of ironic that I think in our culture today, and I love sports, don't get me wrong, but sports has become a religion. There's actually now uh, sociology being written about it, how it's sort of in many ways replaced religion. It's the cult of whatever the ball is you're throwing or hitting. And people really, they they pursue a sport like God asks us to pursue him. So there's something we could probably learn from the dude painted up blue at a Giants game in 20 degree weather. Please don't come in here naked painted. Don't do that. But my point is, is like that fanaticism, right? That desire to just pour it all out for your team, uh, and and maybe a, a little less abrasive way, is what God desires from us. He wants us to be holy athletes, who practice every day, who under the direct supervision of a coach, our father in heaven, our brothers and sisters in Jesus, we have our steps directed. We have truth inputs, making adjustments in our lives normally. And we're humble enough to receive that, but also committed enough to pour it out into others. We are separated now for a reason, not separated in a self-righteous way. We've been moved from one category of life to another in order to embody the image of God. And that that is truly a sport, you might say. It's a sport in the sense that it requires us to take it seriously and to look to our father in heaven and to want to succeed, succeed in the ways he calls us to to want, to, to want to be parented by God, to want to learn from our father. There are likely things that have to be set aside as we are perpetually set apart. There are things we move away from and to. That's really what holiness is. And God is air traffic control on that. He is the one who, who refashions us into his image. And so the reason athleticism is often used to describe the Christian life in Scripture is because many of these same principles, they, they really do apply. And when it comes to being a holy people, like Paul calls us here, the idea is that even, even though the root of all holiness begins by God setting us apart, that's how we open the book, and it's the dwelling truth I want to leave you with. It begins by Jesus setting his love on you. That's where it begins. It begins. And you embracing that and affirming it. You know, in Romans 10, we, it's that old analogy. We don't even use this idea anymore. We profess, right, with our mouths what we believe in our hearts. We affirm who Jesus is and what he has done for us. That is the origin point. We recognize the sacrifice of Jesus and we imbibe that. We want to live in that. We want to grow in that. We know Jesus has set us apart because he loves us. After that happens, though, you and I are supposed to spend the rest of our days Disciplining our lives to grow in the areas God wants us to grow in. And joy is a big one. Listen, you won't run the race of faith permanently without joy. And there are, there are just times in the faith where, where it's not joyful. There are times in the faith where life is not joyful. Joy is not a promised emotion that we have all the time. It is certainly an emotion. It has that element to it. But joy is a deep-seated posture of the heart. It is the ability to find contentment in life, no matter what is going on around you or inside of you, because God is with you. And so as a Christian, there are truly two ways you can choose to wholly follow God with your life and experience his joy. And it is probably guaranteed that every one of us in this room has already made, we've already chosen a path. So for the next few minutes, I just want to briefly look at what those paths are. And it is my hope today that you will leave today sort of knowing in your heart which path you're on and which is the one you want to, if it's the right one to be on or there's a different option. And to to exemplify this, we'll go to Luke 18. We'll go to another passage, much like we did last week in Matthew, where Jesus specifically addresses this. It's a famous passage in the Bible. Luke 18, 9 through 14, it'll be behind me. Where the publican, ta- there's a tax collector and essentially a, a pretty sinful dude is what's going on here. And what we read here from luke is he says to some who are confident of their own righteousness he just grabs the bull by the horn and look down on everyone else right that's where it ends up they, he says it right there when you're confident in your own righteousness you're just going to look down on people you might even do it in very religious ways but you're going to you're going to look at them in ways that are less valuable than god sees them he says to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else jesus told this parable he said two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee is esteemed by culture. The tax collector is the scourge of the first century earth. I mean, there is no worse. Historically, they are dual traders. They are almost always, they are citizens of Judaism who have sold out their people to collect taxes for Rome. And so in this way, the Romans look at them as half-bred, and the Jews look at them as completely in Adam. It is the worst thing to be in the first century world. And so Jesus pits what is the best thing to be in the first century world against the worst thing to be in the first century world. And he says, these two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you, I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, just calls him out. He says, I fast twice a week and give a 10th of all I get. He's got all the form, right? But the tax collector stands at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And here's where Jesus's parables are always, the the answer is never what people expect. Everybody expected that Pharisee to go home justified because he had all the form. But what Jesus tells us is, I tell you that this man speaking of the tax collector, he says, rather than the other, went home justified, what we talked about last week before God. He is the one who found God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. God loves the humble. God loves those who really put Jesus on the throne of their hearts. And this Pharisee is a quintessential example of what happens when we think we're the author and perfecter of faith. It's interesting that the Pharisee who thinks he has God actually doesn't. And it is the sinner who repents and finds God. He leaves that place joyful. He leaves that place with the presence of God. And that is why we can be joyful in all circumstances. And let me tell you, a tax collector needed joy because nobody loved that dude. But that guy walked away believing deeply that there was a guy in heaven who believed him, who loved him. There was a father, a man, our our God in heaven, who loved him. And so the foundation, this truth, is that you must embrace in your heart, if you want to have Jesus's joy in your life, you have to have a deep recognition that God has started the good work of faith in your life because of that gracious act, it's truly God doing the heavy lifting in your life. He is the one who starts the faith, sustains the faith, and finishes the faith. And the practical application of this is a big one when it comes to joy. This is where we'll begin to wrap up. On the days when you are without joy, you really should not beat yourself up over it. On the days when your spirit is willing to follow Jesus, but your flesh is not, you shouldn't cede your joy. You should turn to your Father in heaven who wants to parent you out of that. You should turn to the one who, who has set you apart to follow him. Turn to the one who promises to help you get to the place he wants you to be in life on the days you can't get there yourself. If you believe God has started your faith, that's an okay place to be. You wake up saying, I'm without joy today, but I know, I know that I'm human and I can't be perfect in all areas. So Father, help me to have my joy again. If you're the self-righteous, you say, well, why am I not joyful? Certainly it must be somebody else's fault. <laughs> When you know you are holy because God has set you apart by setting his love on you in Jesus, you're bound to genuinely grow in your love for God and your love for holy living in the peace and unassailable joy that comes with those practices. So you have to press into that. You have to dwell on that. And that is a basic understanding of what holiness is and isn't in the Bible. And so as we shift gears into a pretty practical application here, I want you to think about what what I'm about to say is only going to experientially matter to you if you can get your hearts wrapped around what I just said. And that's probably where the work of a truth like this morning comes into play as we leave this room and try to flesh this out, you know, for the rest of the days we have in this week. What we just learned deeply dictates, it shapes what we're about to learn. If you want joy in your heart, if you believe God is the author of your joy, the author of your faith, if you want joy in your heart, you must rest in the truth that God has also promised to finish the good work he started in your life. You're never going to get to the promise of him finishing if you've not really crowned Jesus the Lord or the author of your faith. And this is what Paul tells us in Philippians 1, 6. He says, being confident of this, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion and to the day of Christ Jesus. He's saying the foundation of your faith and the completion of your faith is all wrapped up in Jesus. And that's an incredible promise that Paul makes us in verse six. He is telling us to be confident in that promise. And inherent in that promise is that God is the great author, sustainer, and finisher of faith. Even when life is out of control, even when life is not right, when we are ailed by physical issues or we have emotional challenges or whatever it is we're dealing with, God is through those things bringing about a good and perfect will. God is capable of taking our hardship and bringing good out of it. He is capable of ferrying us across that chasm of belief. If we will learn to rest in his presence in those moments, sometimes that might even mean foregoing answers. In fact, most times it probably does mean foregoing answers. Mostly what we want is a solution. We want to know why this happened. We'll throw blame on God. But I'm convinced God is more concerned with being present in our lives in those moments. I don't think that God is always concerned with explaining everything that goes on in our lives. But I know he is deeply concerned with us understanding how available and permanent his presence is in our lives during those times. This is what Paul tells the Philippian church as a hope. He gives it to them as a hope. It matters in our church today and it matters in our lives today. And this is the idea behind the promise. It's a recognition that God is a God of completion, a God who always finishes what he starts. And this promise is a particular one that is meant to encourage us in our faith and in the work of the faith. It is the promise of Christian perseverance. We can rest in when life gets tough, when fear and doubt seek to sit on the throne of our hearts, which happens pretty regularly, when serving loses its luster, when our faith gets stale, when you have the why question, why am I doing this, whatever this is in your life before the Lord, and you can't answer that anymore, this is what you have to press into. It's the promise that says no matter how tumultuous life gets, the work of grace God has begun in your hearts is still moving forward. You might not see it. You might not sense it. You might not even believe in it that day. But the truth is God's movement in your life and his movement in the world is always moving in a direction that honors him and blesses us. It it cannot be stopped. That's what Paul tells us. So the question is when we are without joy is what is stopping that? It it isn't God's problem at that point. There really is something in our lives damning that up. This promise is why we are here today. This promise is why God's people are still here today on the earth, worshiping him. And it is why we will still be here until he calls us all home. And this epoch of life and the church era passes when we're with Jesus permanently in his presence in heaven. And the main point I want you to get in this, I guess the big takeaway this morning, in this teaching, what we learn, at least what I think it really shows us, is that we need to regularly be a people who celebrate what God has started in our lives. I think that's where the application is here. When we talk about God authoring and finishing our faith, what that means is there is a ledger in our lives, a record of God working in both of these areas. And it really does us something wrong if we can never stop and meditate on the fulfillment of those two promises. Think about this. It is very likely every one of you has faced, is facing, or will face, in this year, Legion Obstacles. I, I know I eat lunch with a lot of you. I constantly try to st- stay at my weight point because I eat so much lunch with you all. I'm out like four days a week eating with you. And it's interesting hearing God talk, uh, hearing God speak through you all. It's amazing hearing what is going on in life And the fact that people are still getting up and trying to follow God. It's a beautiful truth that despite the obstacles, many of you attempt to carry on the work of the gospel in your life. Despite, right, the challenges, it's worth pointing out, you're still here. You're still making it. You're still following the Lord. This is one of God's great promises to us. He started a work in our lives. Because of that, we can rest in the fact that he will finish it in our lives when it seems like it's gonna be an incomplete task. It's the promise of perseverance. And so, if you're here today dealing with the voice of opposition, internal or external, right? If something in you is keeping you from embracing joy, or if somebody outside of you is keeping you from embracing joy, from becoming who God has said you should be, if someone in your life is defining you, if you have inputs in your life that are more valuable than God, if a circumstance, good or bad, is defining you, or fueling you, or robbing you of your joy, remember, circumstances are finicky friends at the top of the mountain, they they are allies to us. But the minute we slip off the top, they are very much a problem. So you don't wanna have too much faith in a good or negative circumstance in your life. You want Jesus to be on the throne of both. If a repeated attempt to see change in your life, the joy problem we've been talking about, without success begins to discourage you. Maybe you're having a hard time being a disciple of Jesus. we talk about these rhythms each week, but you just can't get them on your radar when you leave this place. If If you're having a hard time being a disciple, or maybe you are not making a disciple, you have not had the blessing yet of investing in people's lives, those in Jesus and far from Jesus, if something on that side of the spectrum is frustrating you, or something I haven't even mentioned today, if it's keeping you down, you have to remember, no one, not even you, can tell you who you can or cannot be. You don't have, according to Paul, the authority to finish that work in your life. The tail end of your story is God's, it's under his authority. And if you truly believe in Jesus, if you're truly following him, he's written a good end to your life. There's a good ending to your story. No matter what the circumstance is, God is going to work in your life. God wants to work in your life and he wants you to become more like him. He wants to father you. You have to remember the completion of your faith, especially as we move away from a topic like this that has been highly emotive. It is not dependent on you or things. Those things play a role in life. You see, we can certainly do things that rob us of joy. I'm not disputing that at all. But what I'm saying is when those things are out of our control, or we just can't figure out why we are without joy, Paul tells us that the ultimate player in our lives, the ultimate role that God plays in our life is that he has the final say in those things. And so what that simply means is you can be at peace. And if you are not at peace, you can be at peace with the fact that you are not at peace. You can go to God and say, I know I am supposed to be at peace, but I am not. Your presence, let me feel that. Let me know that. Let me experience that. And I promise you, God is going to work in your life. It might not be exactly according to your timetable or timeline, but God has promised that he wants you to live in his joy. He wants you to have hope. So be at peace. Have hope. Seek joy. Don't let 18 months of teaching just fall by the wayside. God has promised not only to start, but sustain you in your time of need to actually carry you across the finish line of faith even when you can't get there. He has promised you're going to make it. You will complete the race. And so when you listen to his voice, things happen. You will likely experience a confidence like Paul tells us in six. He says, be confident in this stuff. When you listen to his voice, it is possible amazing things will happen. You'll believe God can do things in your life. You'll believe that you can be something you are not yet today. You'll believe you can find freedom from sin that so easily entangles us, right? God can put that stuff to rest. Your negative emotions, your circumstances in life that sort of cripple us, God can put that to rest. He will ferry you to the place he wants you to be. And throughout the process, you are becoming holy. You are becoming more like Jesus. You are taking on his attributes and laying aside your own, the negative ones especially. You see, the reason you and I shouldn't be afraid of adversity in life, which is often the way God fulfills these promises, and that's why the series is titled Finding Joy in the Circumstances of Life, is oftentimes it is in the hardship. That is when we are most sensitive to learn this stuff. And keep in mind, when I say learn, I don't think that God sees us like a utilitarian pupil. By learning, I mean even understanding God is a presence issue. It is his presence in your life. He is showing you and revealing to you. It's not a teacher student relationship. It's a father child relationship. You can get to this place where you no longer fear adversity because you follow God with all of your heart. You know, no matter where it's coming from, no matter what it is, you've been built to persevere through it. You are truly a holy child. And what that means is God has given you everything you need to be strong. The communion table will teach us this here in just a minute. Everything we need stems from this table. The foundation of our faith comes from what we remember Jesus doing for us today his death on the cross. His death for our life. He's promised if you look to him, he will see you through. He's promised to get you to the place he wants you to go. But I need you to know this. The idea of perseverance is a dwelling rhythm. If you dwell in defeat, you're probably going to end up there. But if you say it's hard and I feel defeated, but the promise is perseverance, things will change. You will likely adopt a posture of defeat and fear in your life when you choose the former. But when you recognize that God has started, is sustaining and finishing the work, the work in your life, victory in Jesus becomes a reality. So stay away from fear and defeat. Don't miss out on the great adventure of following God. Don't miss out on the joy of following God through the good and the bad. The great adventure of pursuing Jesus with all of your heart, soul, and mind. Let those three things work in tandem with each other. And as we move into communion time, which is our reflection space this morning, our response time, I want you to do something different this morning. You're gonna have a lot to think about, especially as we reflect on Christ on the cross here at the table here in a moment. But during response time today, I want you to ask yourself, as we talk about the foundation of our faith, I want you to ask yourself if you really believe God is the author and finisher of your faith. Ask him to help you experience that more deeply if you do, or for the first time if you don't have it at all. Ask God to create a wellspring of unassailable joy in your life. And I want you to put some teeth into this this morning. As you meditate on Jesus in your life and the sacrifice of the cross, I want you to write down somewhere, your phone, a connection card, whatever you use, write down the ways, some of them, even if it's just one, that God has worked in your life over these past months. Write down a way or ways that God has brought joy to you or write down a way where you need to see joy in your life. Don't leave today, and capping this series off, without a joy rhythm, a sustained one, identifying what God has done, or just the desire to find it again. Let God remind you during that time that he is working in your life. And I promise you, even if you are without joy today, if you really start thinking and seeing things through God's eyes, you're going to find spaces where he's working in your life. You're going to begin, you're going to be able to create something you can go back to, which is why I ended Philippians in the first chapter. I felt like we needed to go back to something Paul did not want us to forget. God loves you deeply And he is literally making good on the promise to sustain and finish the work he started in your life. And so as we close this morning, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about the good work he has started in your life? About the good work he is going to finish in your life? What are you going to do about it? Turn your heart's attention now to the communion table. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for your son. Thank you for a trajectory of faithful men and women who have followed your son in Jesus particularly Paul. We thank you for his writings, which are your words, and we thank you, God, for the fact that you have told us today that we can be confident in the fact that you are present in our lives. I pray, Lord, that as we move to the communion table here, this would be the concrete reminder. It would solidify your work in our lives. God, it is our genuine prayer that you bless this time we have now in communion. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.